We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Dr. Emily M. Towns, an American Baptist clergywoman, is a native of Durham, North Carolina. She holds a Doctor of Ministry degree from the University of Chicago Divinity School and a PhD in Religion and Society and Personality from Northwestern University. Dr. Towns is the Dean and Distinguished Professor of Womanist Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University Divinity School becoming the first African-American to serve as Dean of the Divinity School in 2013. She is the former Andrew W. Mellon Professor of African-American Religion and Theology at Yale Divinity School. And in the fall of 2005, she was the first African-American woman elected to the presidential line of the American Academy of Religion and served as president in 2008. She was the first African-American and first woman to serve as the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs in the Yale Divinity School. She is the former Carolyn Williams Beard, Professor of Christian Ethics at Union Theological Seminary and Professor of Social Ethics at St. Paul School of Theology. She is the editor of two collections of essays titled A Troubling in My Soul, Womanist Perspectives on Evil and Suffering, and Embracing the Spirit, Womanist Perspectives on Hope, Salvation, and Transformation. She has also authored Womanist Ethics, Womanist Hope in a Blaze of Glory, Womanist Spirituality as Social Witness, Breaking the Fine Reign of Death, African-American Health Issues, and a Womanist Ethic of Care. And her groundbreaking book, Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil. She is co-editor with Stephanie Y. Mitchum of the Faith, Health, and Healing in African-American Life. Her most recent co-editorship is Womanist Theological Ethics, a reader, done with the late Katie Geneva Cannon and Angela Sims, which was published in November of 2011. Towns was elected a fellow in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2009. She served a four-year term as president of the Society for the Study of Black Religion from 2012 to 2016. In my coursework at CTS in Indianapolis, Dean Towns' work has been a part of my studies in theology, ethics, and pastoral care coursework. Several times, The reading has included Emily's words on not living our lives in the folds of old wounds. And I've carried that womanist wisdom with me as I've embarked on the journeys of generational healing, trauma healing, and other necessary evolutions for the full liberation in the here and now, and ultimately the full liberation of all people. Emily, it is an honor and joy to be joined by you. Thank you for your sacred and holy work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Cassidy. So one of the ways we like to begin is by asking, 
how silence has been a part of your life and spiritual journey. Maybe a time and early memory that you might have when you encountered silence in a meaningful way. Silence has both been a comfort and also a warning. So let me start with the comfort because that might be the most immediate. When my aunt died recently, she was in hospice and she died in the early morning. Um, and so the hospice called us and let us know. And so we all piled into our respective cars and, and drove over and um, entered the room we'd been in so many times before. And the staff, this is just, this is a live hospice. It's a wonderful hospice center. The staff had placed her hands crossed across her stomach with a floral arrangement in her hands. And we all just stood there taking in the fact that she was in fact gone. Her suffering was no more. She suffered, we think, the last five days, she wasn't conscious, so we're not quite sure. And no one really wanted to talk. And I found her death very different from the death of my mother, who was in a hospital setting, uh, having been revived against her wishes several times, and so she um, was in a comatose state, but seizuring, I mean, all the things she didn't want and all the medical equipment was around her, dying in exactly the way she didn't want. And my aunt and her sister and my sister surrounded her bed and the only way we knew of her dying was watching the monitors because that was the noise in the room, but the respirator was doing its work, but we knew to watch the monitors. And we watched each one flatline until they were all gone. One of the things that I think about a lot when it comes to silence, around silence, is what will it mean for us to have a good death? A death where we're surrounded by our loved ones. A death where our wishes and hopes are being fulfilled and the reality that there's still going to be so much more we wanted in and for life. Silence helps me get at that more of a sacredness, more of a, um, a deep cry for who we are and who we could be. Now, the silence that is threatening is the silence that usually comes, in my experience, when someone is about to commit an act of violence and you don't see it coming. That kind of silence gets the hairs on the back of my neck up and I start looking over my shoulder, trying to locate where the problem might be coming from. 
And it may not be physical violence. It could be emotional violence, spiritual violence, but that those moments where um, one of the images I have, it's evil gathering itself to do something, probably not very productive, but very deadly. So those are the two spaces for me. They're very broad um, on silence being both a help and a welcoming and silence also being a warning. Um, watch out, be aware. Yeah. You know, one thing that we sometimes talk about on the podcast and just haven't explored that much is, you know, that that ever-present thought of death being this kind of great silence. And yet I'm struck by the fact that yet our grief um, is often quite loud amid that. I wonder if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. In, in my tradition, and I think there's probably in others as well, we have what's known as the death whale, where sounds that you never uttered in your life and will never utter a day again come out of you um, as the, the sort of finality of death happens. For me, that's happened twice in my life. Um, once when my grandmother, my maternal grandmother died, um, and I was uh, in Chicago and she was in North Carolina. No, I'm sorry. No, it happened three times. When my grandmother died, when my father died, and I was in the Chicago area, and uh, my mother called to tell me that dad had passed. And um, I had no idea. I had let out this whale in the family home I was in at the time. They didn't know what in the world had happened. Um, and then when my mother died, I held it together because I'm usually the one in our family system that does the memorial services and funerals. Exactly what you're not supposed to do, but nobody told my family system that. And I held it together until we were walking out of the auditorium where we held mom's memorial service. And I got just past the door and just, and my sister, it's, it's been long enough now, my sister teases me about it. Uh, she's younger. That's what younger sisters do sometimes. Um, but she said, I never heard you do that. And I said, I know I was doing something, but I can't tell you what it was. Um, there's this sort of the release of the finality of what I knew before is now a memory. And how do I, what do I need to do to hold on to the memory? And what do I need to do to release it? And it's, it's one of those, those things in this case with mom's death where dad had already died and now mom had died. And you know, you're an orphan. And for me as an adult, I didn't think about what being an orphan would be like when both my parents died. I thought of orphans as little kids who lose their parents. 
and it's um, pretty sobering. So my aunt who just died was, although she didn't like the, the title, she was the matriarch of our uh, family on the maternal side, which is the only one I know, really, in my family system. And uh, I'm the oldest of the cousins. So now I, I, I have become a matriarch by default. And that means I have to be a real grown-up. That's new. Because <laughs> I always had someone older I could fall back on if um, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, now, now I'm pretty much it. And I have to figure out other resources to help me guide my family um, and myself and my, and my spouse and our dog. I mean, you know, the whole thing is like, geez, I'm the oldest one. And I'm not that old. I'm 65. That's spring chicken these days. But it, that, that, that loudness, I think, in part for me, is um, really getting a sense of a new, a new beginning has started. And maybe I'm not really ready for that to happen, but I have no choice. And there's a holiness to that, you know, a sacredness to these expressions you're talking about. Yeah. Another thing I'm really brought that's brought to mind for me is the importance of lineage and um, navigating that thread. I know for me and understanding that I am a part of the thread um, that weaves through my life. How have you carried that with you in your work as it relates to your family, as it relates to womanist theologians who have come before you? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm a Southerner. I'm from North Carolina. And one of the great features of Southern comfort is uh, we're storytellers often. And sometimes they're true. And sometimes they're not true. But they still are true. And so uh, I uh, often will make reference in my work to members of my family, my grandmother being one, whom I, I tend to talk about more than anyone, but also the, the idea of a story painting a word picture is something that I love. And how well do you paint that word picture so that Long after your words are gone, there's an image that sticks in one's head. And that image will do more work than all the words I ever did, gave you. Um, and so that's what I, what I try to do in terms of telling stories in, in my work and try not to make people be heroic. That's, that's um, first of all, it's not true. And second of all, it's boring. Uh, and it's not really the human condition. I really think I'd be very bored in heaven if everything was perfect. There would be nothing to protest, nothing to be outraged about. It's like, what would I do with my time? Not that I want to go in the other direction either, but it's um, what stories do is take us places. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment 
and breathe with us. There's a story I tell from time to time about reading all the books in my grade school library that was um, still in the segregated South. And so I thought this was a huge room. When I went back as an adult, it really wasn't that large space at all. But I uh, started at one end of the library and re started reading through all the books. And it just so happened that the place where I started were with the uh, Greek and Roman mythologies. These were some fascinating people. They weren't like the God I heard about on Sunday morning. So what do I learn from these stories? How do I take that with me? And then um, getting to the encyclopedias near the end, which was a slog, but coming up against and now no longer in print edition of the World Book Encyclopedia that had pictures of slavery in it where there was watermelon and smiling black people and life was good and everybody was happy. And I knew that wasn't quite right. And I pointed it out to my um, grade school teacher and the librarian. I didn't know then the power of protest. Mm. That set a lot of encyclopedias was immediately taken out of the library because they were not going to have it. Now, I didn't know that till years later when teachers were telling me. But that kind of story links people uh, to the times where you or I may have looked at something and went, hmm, that's not right. And we have a bond. We have a moment we can share. We have some common feelings, maybe. That's what stories can do. I just want to say that I'm reminded of two things. Uh, you talked about painting pictures and stories, and I can see those those folded hands with those flowers. Mm -hmm. You know, you've already done that for us today, and also in this this idea of of no hero in this is bonding of just elevating the collective. I, I think a lot about, well, this election and a lot of people pointing to the mm. good, important work of Stacey Abrams, which is true. And yet also recognizing the collective around her and with her that ultimately got the work done. So I'm, I was just reminded of those two things. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So I'd love to hear the story of how you came to meet womanist theology, how mm -hmm. that story became part of your story or vice versa. Well, that story has many strands. So let me just pick one for today. 
back in the day when you could get a doctor of ministry degree and it was more of an academic degree, I did that at the University of Chicago and um, was still in the Chicago area because I was working in a, a bookstore. I was also working with the Ecumenical Women's Center um, and sort of being grown up in many ways by the women in the EWC who saw something in me that I had no idea was there as the youngest person um, coming through the door. And I got a call one day from Henry Young, who was on the faculty of Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary up in Evanston. And um, this was the early... Eh, 82-83 and they had just begun to get the first wave of black women coming into seminary settings and this was a rather uh, mouthy bunch of black women who said why don't you have any black women on the faculty so they were scrambling uh, they saw I had a doctor of ministry um, that was uh, enough and so they asked if I would go and teach a course. And I said, sure, not a problem. Well, what had happened before then um, was looking and listening to some of what was going on in Union Seminary in New York, where at that point in time, Katie Cannon, Jacqueline Grant, and Dolores Williams were all um, PhD students. Can you imagine? And they were starting to make noise. There was nothing, it was not called anything other than Black women in ministry. And so I was hearing this and had read some James Cone, even at University of Chicago, and was thinking, hmm, well, this is interesting because they're really just saying the things I've always heard in the church. When the women in the church get together in women's groups and talk about, you know, what are we going to do in the name of the Lord? So I had these two streams going. I taught the class, but not before on the first day realizing as I was driving up to Evanston, I didn't know about the first thing about teaching. <laughs> which is not a good time to have this recognition. <laughs> but I couldn't turn back, so I drove forward, got into the classroom, uh, about 25 students, mostly black women, um, a few, a couple, three black men, one or two uh, white women. Uh, and everybody was excited because it turned out none of them had ever had a black woman professor or teacher. So we were all doing something new. And I sat down and arranged my stuff and did what I now do for all the classes I teach in person. I said, let us pray. They thought it was for them. It was for me. I needed to figure out what I was going to do. I opened my mouth after the prayer and started talking and realized immediately, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Now, the irony here is both my parents were college professors, and I was not going to be a college professor. I was going to be my own person. So I started teaching adjunct. And there was a 
Racial Ethnic Women in Ministry Consultation, sponsored by the National Council of Churches, where Katie Cannon was the keynote speaker. And you know, Katie Cannon was, we didn't call it that then, but I was a fangirl of the first order. Is who there weren't that many people out there. And I actually ended up being her driver. And Katie had a way of interviewing people to find out all about them. And so she was sitting outside her cabin, picture a group of racial ethnic women in ministry in the middle of Wisconsin in the woods. And I had not said anything the whole time I was driving her around because I didn't want to say something stupid. So she was interviewing all the people around her and she looked at me because I was standing off to the side, I'm sure grinning to beat the band. And she said, what about you? You're my driver, but you don't say much. What do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I know I want to teach, but that means I have to go back and get a PhD. And I'm just not quite ready to do that. So maybe in about five years, I will uh, go back. And Katie gave me this look, which I learned over the years. You don't want to see her give you that particular look. It's sort of like, I thought you were, had some sense, but clearly I was wrong. And she just looked at me and she said, do you realize that as we sit here in 1984, there are only five Black women with earned PhDs in theological education in the world. And I was sort of, I stood there wow. and, you know, I'm going through the list and like, I know them all. I just thought there were more. And apparently it, it, the, the realization registered and she just looked at me and said, do you think we can afford for you to wait? That next fall, I was in school again, working on a PhD. And it was about that time, this is now 1985, and Alice Walker's womanist started to be used by Katie and Jackie and Dolores. And I thought, this is interesting stuff. So I was observing it from afar, reading what little they um, published and listening more to tapes of things they said and working on eventually a dissertation on Ida B. Wells Barnett. And the title of my dissertation, because I had not yet done, I was not yet convinced womanist was the thing for me, was uh, something like an Afro-feminist perspective on Ida B. Wells Barnett's moral and social world. Some, awkward and clunky title. I don't remember what it was now. Luckily, I got a job right before I graduated. And so at St. Paul School of Theology in Kansas City, Missouri. And I decided to take the summer to read this womanist stuff and decide, is, is this a word for me? Is this a term for me? Is this a descriptor for me or not? At the end of the summer, I decided, no, 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 it 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 fits. Dean and Towns, do you remember what you were reading? What what you read that summer? I wish I could. Yeah. Um. Because the, the minute I said that to you, I was thinking, I have not a clue what I mm. read. But it was, um, I'm sure it was things 
in Christianity in Crisis, which is uh, unfortunately no longer with us as a, um, a magazine. Maybe a little stuff in uh, Christian Century, because nobody had written a book. So what mm. you read were articles wherever, what I read were articles wherever I could find them. And so this is actually where Orbis Books became so important for us in the early days. Um, because Orbis yeah. was the publisher for Black yeah. theology, which womanist theology got grandfathered, grandmothered in. And, and I should say, at the insistence of James Cone, a lot of people don't know that um, in the early days, Jim was a champion. And that, that is when I realized that actually what I was doing in my work was a womanist methodology. I was looking at race and gender and class and sexuality and um, now sexual orientation and incorporating concerns around age and um, militarism and all sorts of things. That, that actually is what a social ethicist does if you're worth your salt. And so why not call myself what I am? Could you flesh out for us what that methodology, a womanist methodology, looks like that, and how that struck you as so in, an important voice that needed to be added to the conversation that you felt was missing? Because I think not everybody who—maybe um, not everyone reads fully into womanist. Maybe some don't know what that is, but I would love to flesh that out for those who never have heard of it. Okay. Well, womanist thought—I uh, put it that way, first and foremost, because I think of— womanism as a method and not a discipline, which you will find disagreements with me, and that's just fine. Uh, I, I know what I'm doing, and I'm not going to tell somebody they have to do it the way I do it. Um, I don't even allow my PhD students to, to, to become parrots of me. Uh, it's wholly disgusting. Anyway, what womanist thought does is center the experiences, and the plural is important here, the experiences of Black women of faith as we look at the world and say, this is what we see. And what we tend to see, we see through the lenses of gender and sex and sexuality and race and class, at bare minimum, those things come together. So it is what I call a matrix. It's, um, some people call it um, interdisciplinary. Other folks call it intersectional. But what you're doing is recognizing that life as we know it is bound up in structures. And we're not um, imprisoned by them unless we decide to be or we are forced to be. And here's where for me as an ethicist, being an active agent, being a person who can make decisions in the world about how I will and won't act in the world as I respond to the world around me, this becomes so important at that point. So what womanist thought does is add yet another voice 
to the theological, the spiritual, the moral conversations. Not a voice that says this is better than anyone else's, but this is a voice that needs to be heard as we try to put all this stuff together. Um, I, I'm not, I don't wanna play um, a postmodern version of king or queen of the mountain around a way to think about life itself. The more information we can get, the more ways we can get that information, I think the better we can um, approach life in really trying to help with God bring in the new heaven and new earth. Just going on what we know by ourselves is usually not enough. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world.